Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ido Vok, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman, and you're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Margareta Vestager, the EU Commissioner for Competition, about regulation of big tech, Europe's competitiveness compared to the US, and Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Mrs. Vestager, thanks very much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Can I ask you, first of all, about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter? There has been, I think, quite a lot of attention placed on Twitter as a result of this, a lot of questions about the future of Twitter. How is the takeover of Twitter and the subsequent changes that there have been viewed in the commission and by you? Well, I think most of us are, are quite uh, easy. Um, we are accomplished users of, of Twitter. It's a communication channel. It's, it's a way of debate. It's a way of finding uh, insights. I think everyone from also a personal, professional point of view is concerned about the developments. I, for one, really appreciated the recent changes of Twitter before the takeover. So, for instance, the nudging to read the things before you pass it on, the labeling that maybe you should look for authoritative information. If you read anti-vax posts, for instance, and also that you have the blue tick so that you know that the person whose post you're reading is really that person. It's not a bot, it's not someone impersonating someone else, because all of that, in, in my opinion, over the years have increased the credibility of the media. And also from a more sort of regulatory point of view as, as in enforcers, Twitter have been signing up for the code of the conduct of good practices, uh, also the strength uh, version of it, what is running up. Uh, to the full enforcement uh, of the Digital Services Act. So also in that respect, a concern, because the work that we have been doing with social media platforms, also Twitter, is of course to make sure that there is meat and muscle of the slogan that what is illegal offline is also illegal online. And that is what, of course, what is a bit up in the air right now, because we don't know in, in to what respect and in what form Twitter will live up to European legislation that are to kick in in a very short time or to the code of conduct that they have indeed signed in their previous person. 
Twitter has reinstated the accounts of people like Donald Trump and Kanye West. Was that the right move and might it contravene rules or legislation in the EU? Well, I don't think that is for me to, to judge because we don't, we don't have rules as to who can participate and who cannot participate. We have rules that are coming into effect as to what can be posted. For us, it's really important that uh, the legitimacy of, uh, of democracy is a real thing. And two things here. First thing is that democracy guarantees you freedom of expression. Democracy also says there are things that are forbidden. Uh, you should not, you should not hate other people. You should not promote uh, child abuse, uh, incitement to violence or terrorism. You should not share bomb recipes, just to give you obvious examples. And that, of course, will have to be in place. So it's about the substance. It's a, not about who's on the platform. But clearly, if people were banned for, banned initially under previous rules for posting tweets and content, which was perceived as harmful and hateful. That implies that this speech is now viewed as acceptable by Twitter in a way that it wasn't before. Thus, is there a chance that the subsequent tweets and posts by these people could be in contravention of European rules and standards? Well, I don't, I don't know in, in every detail how the Twitter terms and conditions would work in this respect. In Europe, there has been no sanction of Trump because it's for a US context. So I would leave that for the US side of things. But if in a European event, they would have to take down posts that would incite to, to violence or the like. And likely that would also lead to the people making these posts being expelled. But that would be due to their terms and conditions. As said, we focus on what is actually out there and that you have these mechanisms of making sure that you can actually deal with whatever is expressed that are illegal by the national le legislators. So from a European perspective, what we do is that we set out the mechanism that you need to have in place. And then in every member state, they decide on substance. Because for instance, if you look at the Danes and the Swedes, I think that would not agree on the exact sort of how big is the gray zone. Uh, the Swedes are, are usually much more civilized than the Danes. So it's important that is uh, a, a national thing, but to have the system in place, to make sure that these laws are respected, that is absolutely essential. That's a bold comment coming from a Dane. Do you see any potential for anti-competitive practices from Twitter's new management? And in particular, for example, obviously there are these new rules which Elon Musk has set out about working conditions and so on. These might be compatible with US legislation, but European legislation in various member states is, is quite different. And these rules seem to have been applied globally, thus meaning that what might be legal in the US could not be in Europe. Do you think there's a danger that these kind of new directives about things like long working hours and rules that put in place at a moment's notice, could those potentially be, be in contravention with uh, European standards? Why you, I honestly don't know because it's not, it's not in my immediate portfolio. In every member state in Europe, there would be labor market authorities who would enforce the fundamentals, what is in national legislation. And that has indeed to do also with the time. You need to give people time to adjust to new working conditions. And there are also fundamental legislation in, I think in all countries as to working hours, to the health and safety in the workplace. But this is for national authorities. This is not for us. Can I ask you about Facebook and Meta? Meta is pushing very strongly into 
the metaverse, which is this kind of virtual reality universe. It's investing very heavily into this, despite a lot of skepticism as to whether people actually want to use this. How do you view this kind of new uh, new platform for the way people use the internet and interact with each other? And do you want a kind of space in Europe that is regulated according to European European standards, legislations that functions according to EU rules? Well, if I may start with a personal comment, I think it's very important to be very much aware that technology should not steal your time. In our lives, this is the most constrained budget that we have. It's the time we have available for our lives. And, and I think it's, it is really important for each and every one of us to realize that even though our digital life seems to be more and more real, all the troubles of, uh, of real life coming together usually is worth it, so to speak. But that's a personal comment because I have a concern if we are all on our sofa or couch with a pair of, of glasses and not out and about with other people in nature, in our workplaces. The second thing is that we like to talk about digital realities. So in the pro, and it's really important to have interoperationality, that different ways of doing three-dimensional services that they can interoperate with one another. And, uh, and we will start looking at law enforcement because if more and more services will be offered in a, a, at least three-dimensional digital reality, well, then more and more activities will take place there. And because of that, it's important for law enforcement also to have a presence. Our starting point is that our rules are good to go also in, in digital realities, but we would want to check it to make sure and this work is, is starting now. A lot of European legislation on competitiveness from big tech seems to start from the philosophical premise that these companies are massive and they have in monopolies and they have very significant power, including to, to buy out competitors and things like that, to shut out competitors using their own dominant position in the marketplace. This is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is a the philosophical position that a lot of legislation from the EU on, on competitiveness starts from. And we've seen this in attempts to bring, for example, Facebook to heel, Amazon, or Apple, and, and all these kinds of companies. But do you think that actually these companies could be more vulnerable to be to being displaced than perhaps this philosophical approach allows for. Because for example, we're seeing that Facebook is struggling very strongly. It's being displaced by other apps, for example, TikTok notably. Its usage is dropping quite considerably and it's investing a lot in the metaverse, even though it doesn't really seem to be taking off very strongly. Although there's this kind of perception that these companies are unassailable and they're just using their billions of dollars to, to buy out any competition and to prevent any competitors emerging, actually they're more vulnerable than perhaps it, it may appear. Well, I think it's difficult to judge, but the important thing in the legislation that we are passing is that if they are vulnerable, then competitors should be able to use that vulnerability to compete against them. That they cannot face off themselves in a walled garden. They cannot defend themselves just by buying every future competitor. They must respect that with the power they have now comes a responsibility not to fortify uh, that power by de facto closing down the market. This is why we use this metaphor of a gatekeeper that they can decide uh, who's in the market and who's not in the market. 
because it is for every business to accept competition. That, that you need, you need to accept that there will be a newcomers with better ideas, with better technology, with more courage to, to challenge what is accepted. And it has been the case over many decades that the ones who were the dominating companies in the market, well, if they didn't change, then they disappeared. And I think that is, it's really important that the power you have in the marketplace is not used to prevent this from happening or delay this from happening. That's that the legislation is opening the market. That is the, the fundamental point. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Armando Yanucci. And I'm Anusha Kellyan. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukissi-Debra and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The EU recently lost a, a state aid case which it had brought against a tax deal between Fiat and Luxembourg, which is viewed as a blow to its strategy of using state aid laws to tackle aggressive tax minimization strategies. Is this a setback for your approach to tackling tax? 
It's a big blow to us and to the fight for tax fairness. Again, it is found to be legitimate that we can use the state aid tool, but the judgment is setting a very high bar when it comes to the use of what is called the arms length principle that basically all member states of the European Union has accept, have accepted, but have implemented in very different ways in national legislation. So it is, it's a serious situation that we're in. We're still analyzing its effects. And the reason why I find this to be very serious is I think that both for fairness reasons and for competitiveness reasons, it's very important that we keep on fighting for tax justice. Because many businesses, they work very hard to make a profit. From that, they pay their taxes. While others, they can organize themselves out of paying taxes due. And the point of the answering's principle is exactly that you cannot organize yourself in a way so that you can minimize your taxation, because that is unfair competition towards smaller companies who cannot themselves because they cannot organize their financing or their subcontractors into one holding. They are in the market for these different things that they need, financing, subcontractors. The judgment invites a very serious discussion about the implementation of the arms length principle in European member states. And of course, as I said, it's a blow, but it's not taking away our focus or discouraging us in what we're doing in order to have fairness also when it comes to taxation. So how will your approach change as a result of this judgment? Well, it's still too early to say exactly because we're still analyzing it. To some degree, the judgment is very clear. And then there are some comments, which again, leaves a bit of, uh, of space for us in the cases that's orienting itself towards the use of the arms length principle. Then we have other cases, both where the arms length principle is explicitly integrated in national law. And we have cases that do not rely on the arms strength principles that has a different logic. And in the two latter cases, of course, we can push on. There is a lot of worry in Europe at the moment that for various reasons, Europe is becoming a lot less competitive to particularly to build things because of high energy costs, which are much cheaper in the US. And in addition, the US has, has passed a, a recently quite substantial pro-business legislation, which should help spur more investment and more production in the US. How worried are you that businesses will relocate to the US because it's just too expensive to, to produce in Europe? Well, I see this as a work program for us because we need to address these issues. The fact that energy prices in Europe are so much higher than the US is to a very large degree a reflection of the cost of war in Europe and on the very doorstep of the European Union. And I do hope that people recognize that Europe is taking a very heavy toll. Obviously, the Ukrainians, they are, they are at war. Uh, but the effects uh, in Europe, I think they are, they are much heavier than what is being appreciated also around the planet. And the energy cost is one of the obvious, one of those. The most obvious way to, to get out of that is, of course, to accelerate the establishment of renewable capacity. Because most renewable capacity, when you look at the marginal cost of energy, it is much lower than what you would see when you look at, at fossil fuels. The challenge, of course, is to build the bridge between the situation now with very high prices 
and a more permanent situation where you have much more renewable in the grids. And because of that, also lower prices and, and a better independence, less dependency from foreign suppliers. To build the bridge to that, that is a challenging point. And this is why we have put in place this temporary crisis framework to enable member states to support uh, businesses to take this travel, to build this bridge to a more permanent uh, and better situation. I think one should focus a lot on this because obviously it's, it's a good thing that the Americans are full on fighting climate change. We've been asking for this for a very long time. But at the same time, it is important that it's done in a competitive manner. We have established a task force at the very highest level to see what can be done for European businesses not to be discriminated. We have sold very difficult things before, data flows in particular. With that respect, of course, we focus on it, but, but we analyze every dimension of this to see what can be done with member states because... We are very close to the Americans as we should be because we are major democracies in a world that needs democracy and where there are systemic rivalry. We are in together to fight climate change, but we need to do it in a way that respects, I think, legitimate concerns for competitiveness and also for the cost of the taxpayer. Because the risk is that what we have ahead of us is a subsidy race that shifts the risk from shareholders to taxpayers. And that, of course, is something that is also one of our concerns. How receptive are the Americans to these calls for cooperation and for kind of equalization of, uh, of your practices and of subsidies? Well, to some degree, they are. We have very good discussions within the framework of the Trade and Technology Council about subsidy transparency, because we will not fight climate change or have a bigger US-EU footprint in the semiconductor global ecosystem if there are not subsidies being being enabled. But having subsidies and having transparency in subsidies is a different thing than having a subsidy race, where companies can travel to see if they can make member states, US states and federal authorities outbid one another. And we have a quite open discussion on this, but it remains to be seen to what degree we can establish that there is fairness in this process that European businesses are not being discriminated against because we see that other countries have better and fairer conditions with the US that goes for Canada and Mexico in particular. And what specific issues are you worried about? Is it mostly electric cars or are there other questions too? No, actually it's, it's a bit broader than electrical cars. It also goes for elements that goes into electrical cars and for part of, of the renewable industry. I think for the individual business, it may seem quite attractive, sort of the U.S. offer. Uh, but for the European industrial base as a whole, uh, we have reasons uh, to focus on this to see if we can address, I think, legitimate concerns about the effects. And in the short term, as, as these subsidies get underway in the U.S. and there is no kind of agreement between the EU and the U.S., how do you convince businesses not to move more operations to the U.S. in the, in the immediate term? as energy costs remain high, as, there, as there, there isn't a kind of permanent agreement? Well, of course, we're not in the boardroom of every business. But of course, I hope that, that there is appreciation of the fact that Europe is an excellent place to do business. Because if you look at the entire of what it takes, you'd see that, yes, there are problems when it comes to attractive subsidies outside of Europe and attractive energy prices outside of Europe. What you have within the European Union is a high level of high-skilled, very productive workers. You have excellent infrastructure. 
you have free health and educational systems, you have a high level of, of security for wherever you, you want to settle within the union. And looking at the alternatives and also the costs uh, of shifting, of course, I rely on, on the business community to have a full appreciation of what it means to do business in Europe. Margot Verstegger, thanks very much for your time. You're more than welcome. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Brown. I'm Ida Vok. Thanks for listening and until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.